Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's pod is actually the second part of our two-part episode on looking at Boko Haram. While last week on uh, Valentine's Day we gave you the great romantic gift of Uh, a full hour chat about the origins of Boko Haram, the countering of Boko Haram and the aims of the group themselves. Today we're going to be very much focusing in on the role of women uh, within Boko Haram and the the role that they play within the group, in countering the group and as as targets of the group as well. I'm delighted to be joined by Hilary Matfess, who's a PhD student at Yale University and the author of Women and the War on Boko Haram, published by Zed Books, is that correct? Uh, that is. So, Hilary, thanks so much uh, for being on today's episode. And uh, first of all, what role do women actually play within Boko Haram? What have we seen? Sure. So thanks so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to this and and about my research um, for the book with your audience. Um, Women's roles within Boko Haram are really varied. Um, And one of the reasons that I was so excited to work with Zed to publish this book is that it's looking at something that's generally understudied in conflict studies, uh, the role of women in these groups, but particularly poorly understood with the example of Boko Haram. So when you think of Boko Haram and women in Boko Haram in particular, the thing that springs to mind immediately is the Chibok abductions. Um, At the time, the hashtag Bring Back Our Girls campaign was the most retweeted hashtag in history. So it's, it's not to malign anyone that has that association, but that certainly doesn't capture a holistic view of the role that women play in Boko Haram. So... And it doesn't even capture a holistic view of the women who are abducted by Boko Haram. So I'm going to start demonstrating or talking about some of the layers uh, of women's roles in Boko Haram. And so we have, you know, kind of this initial layer of the Chibok girls, the 276 girls who were abducted in the night of April 14th, 2014 from their school dormitories um, and became a a global cause celebrate. Below that, or kind of more generally, you have women who have been abducted into Boko Haram's ranks. And it's difficult to get estimates of this, but certainly thousands of women and girls have been abducted by Boko Haram into their ranks. So really, Chibok is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to these abductions. And and there's been a significant amount of campaigning around this issue. Something that's even more obscured is the, the number of women who have joined Boko Haram on a more voluntary basis. Now, just as how men join join on a spectrum of consent and enthusiastic support um, for the group's ideology or their mission to those who join for um, kind of material purposes or, or because they've been coerced in, though not abducted, that same spectrum exists for women, but it's not frequently appreciated. So over the course of my research, I was able to speak to women who joined Boko Haram voluntarily and who actually remained loyal to the sect. And so I asked them about what would motivate them to join this group, which, especially as, you know, a woman coming from the West, I had this very kind of uh, sharp consideration of the group as as an anti-woman group. Um, And the reasons that they listed were kind of like shockingly mundane. Um, Boko Haram 
provides education, near daily chronic education. And a number of the women that I spoke to talked about how that was a huge appeal of the group to them because access to education for women and girls is extremely curtailed in Northeast Nigeria. Another reason was that Boko Haram practices purda or wife seclusion. Uh, and again, as a, a kind of, you know, full-throated Western feminist, the idea of wife seclusion, my knee-jerk reaction was that that's, you know, that's not a feminist, um, that that's a, an oppressive practice that demeans women. But hearing these women talk about it, wife uh, seclusion is actually a sign of status. It's something to aspire to. Uh, because typically only wealthy men in the North can afford to ha to practice wife seclusion. And so the fact that they could join Boko Haram and get this, this marker of status was very appealing to these women. Um, another aspect um, about why women joined that was somewhat surprising to me was the role of bride price. Um, and I published with Valerie Hudson on the role of bride price um, on kind of the, the men's side uh, of recruitment into armed groups using case studies of Nigeria and South Sudan, and that's available open access in international securities, um, 2017 summer issue. Um, but I would talk to these women, and they were very proud that the bride price would pay, be paid directly to them rather than to their family or their fathers. And so um, one of the women that I spoke to was even very proud that, you know, her bride price included dollars and euros. And so, you know, even though it's a group that's purports to be anti-Western, there was this kind of cosmopolitan aspiration and then desire to have some individual autonomy. Um, so even though Boko Haram's bride prices, from what I can gather, are typically lower than what people outside of the group might pay, because it was paid directly to the women, many women would join for that kind of sense of autonomy and agency, and then obviously the material benefit of the bride price itself. You mentioned their wife's seclusion. What exactly are you? Uh, does this entail? How does this manifest? Sure. So... In, in the practice of wife seclusion, when a woman leaves her compound, she covers herself. Um, uh, and it's, uh, I'm certainly not a chronic scholar, but it, it, it's um, sort of a way, some of the analysis that I've read, it's a way of kind of carrying the home with you and, and secluding your body from the view of others. Um, and in Boko Haram, this manifested with actually um, kind of the importing of some of the styles of, of coverage that you'd see in the Middle East that are, are not really um, historically been popular in northeastern Nigeria. And so the girls would talk about um, full body coverings, including gloves and socks, anytime that they would leave their house. Um, and one of the girls um, who I spoke to, who had joined the group somewhat voluntarily, uh, told me about how you know, as she was being told about this practice of covering, um, that it would be, quote, a, a sin if the sun saw her hair or something like that. Um, so it's uh, it's very much a practice that involves covering yourself when outside of the home. Um, but it also has a practical implication for a lot of these women in that they're not forced or they're not able, depending on your, your point of view, um, to go work um, in the fields as farmers or to help with the harvest. 
Um, and uh, again, you know, my knee-jerk reaction with all of my priors and biases was to interpret that as a form of oppression. Um, right up until I was doing field work in my degree during Ramadan um, and, you know, partially fasting to not offend the people that I was interviewing and, and to show some respect um, and, you know, just kind of like sneaking granola bars um, out of view in the bathroom when people couldn't see me uh, and realizing just how oppressive that heat can be and how relief from having to play that role as a means of supporting your family would definitely be something to aspire to mm -hmm. um, just because of the physical difficulty of engaging in agricultural labor uh, in that context. At the beginning as well, you mentioned that the, the Chibok girls is just, this is just the tip of the iceberg when we come to, um, to looking at abductions uh, by Boko Haram. Why do you think that case got such international focus? Why was it that case that uh, drew out the hashtag of bring back our girls? Um, and why have the other cases not gained as much since then or as a result of this? You know, John, that's a really great question, um, and it's one that I've been toying with a lot uh, in the course of, I'm now drafting a report on um, Boko Haram's use of female suicide bombers mm -hmm. and gender norms, uh, and Boko Haram did not use a single female suicide bomber until after the Chibok abductions, um, several months after, and so I'm, uh, I'm kind of trying to think through the implications of that, and so... In the process of looking at that paper and trying to unpack that puzzle, um, I've been trying to figure out what it is about the Chibok girls that, I mean, really, it's an unprecedented social media effort that actually resulted in government concessions by the Nigerian state in the course of negotiations. Um, uh, th there was a fairly hefty ransom paid for the uh, 100 or so Chibok girls that were released, and several Boko Haram commanders were released. The Nigerian government received, um, the Wall Street Journal uh, reported, I think it was billions in military aid um, and surveillance support to find these girls. I mean, it is not just a social media phenomenon. There are tangible results. And the theory that I find most appealing and that I'm trying to unpack is that this fits into kind of a a broader history of the West in particular latching on to kind of the quote-unquote perfect victims. Um, and these are young women um, who we have this kind of gender norm as being inherently nonviolent and peace-seeking and innocent and vulnerable. Uh, and they were pursuing an education, which is something that uh, particularly the United States, the West, has, has become sort of a a development uh, practitioner favorite and I, you know listen I'm getting my PhD at Yale I'm har hardly one to knock education as a transformative experience and a unnecessary um, kind of aspect for women's liberation and, and democratization um, but it does add to this kind of narrative of the perfect victim um, and we've seen this before, though certainly not on the scale um, as the Bring Back Our Girls movement. So um, the Lord's Resistance Army um, in Uganda, um, and I'm, I'm forgetting what year, but they abducted um, schoolgirls um, from their Christian girls' school um, in 
a bouquet, and I'm, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. Um, and there was a global outcry, um, but because social media wasn't as pervasive at that point, it was somewhat limited. Uh, and if I'm recalling correctly, then uh, Pope John Paul II spoke out against it, um, Hillary Clinton uh, spoke out against it, um, and some of the girls were returned in negotiations. Um, and part of the reason that that story captured the global imagination, much in the same way that the Chibok girls' narrative captured the world's imagination, is that it fits into this image that we have of, of what girls should be. And they should be students, and they should be peaceful. Um, and I, I do think that the, the Christianity aspect of it plays a role, um, particularly um, for the United States and the West. Um, another example um, that detracts from what I just said about the Christian aspect of it um, is the popularity of Malala, um, who was a schoolgirl who was targeted. Um, the, the predominant narrative is that she was targeted for trying to seek an education. And, and while I absolutely don't condone the violence that she faced, she was much more than just a schoolgirl. I mean, she was an activist that was an anonymous blogger for the BBC. But her narrative has very much been shaped by Western kind of perceptions and, and trying to force her narrative more into that mold of like what a girl should be along very traditional and frankly limiting gender norms. Um, so I think the Chibok girls' popularity and the popularity of the Bring Back Our Girls movement is the result of a number of factors. One, I think social media is an inextricable kind of piece of this story. Two, obviously the hard work of the activists behind it. Um, and you had some real heavy hitters um, in Nigerian advocacy um, and politics behind it. So even though they had, at first, a very confrontational relationship with then-President Goodluck Jonathan uh, and First Lady um, Patience, yes, uh, Jonathan, um, they have, you know, kept the pressure on. They've cultivated a number of partnerships um, within Nigeria and abroad. Um, but I do think a large piece of this puzzle is just that the Chibok girls play into our conception of what a perfect victim is. Um, yeah, no, I think I, I, it, it, that seems to fit exactly with, with the way I would have, would have considered it as well. Towards the beginning of that question, of that answer though, you mentioned that you're, um, you're finalizing a report on the use of female suicide bombers by uh, Boko Ram and how it, this was really only happening post Chibok girls. What are, what kind of uh, missions are these uh, women being used in? Uh, in? Is it in relation to very specific kinds of targets? And um, how are, so what have we, what have we seen uh, in relation sure. to these attacks? Sure. So um, for anyone that's interested in an overview of Boko Haram suicide bombings, both male and female generally, I'd refer you to the Exploding Stereotypes report that I published with Jason Warner at the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. came out just this summer, um, and we'll be updating that database again soon. Um, but what we've seen is, frankly, an unprecedented number of female suicide bombers. They've used more than 200 um, in the less than four years since they've adopted the tactic. And to give you a sense of proportion, the previous kind of record holder for most suicide, female suicide bombers were the Tamil Tigers, who used 40 over the course of a decade. I mean, this is truly an unprecedented use. And it accounts to um, 
roughly half of their their suicide bombing totals, which is, I mean, just an insane proportion um, that I, I haven't seen in any other group in the research that we've done. Um, where Boko Haram's use of female suicide bombers does fit the global pattern is in what sorts of targets they've been deployed to. So it's frequently soft targets like markets, bus stops. Um, Boko Haram uh, has sent female suicide bombers to IDP camps, which is, I mean, just truly horrifying when you consider it. Um, and they've begun to use uh, underage bombers as well. So girl bombers, um, and also um, in Cameroon, they sent female suicide bombers to a market strapped with infants to their back um, to conceal the explosives. Um, so, I mean, truly a, a tactic that is horrifying on so many levels um, and really, in my opinion, designed to upend the social norms uh, and gender norms about who is a source of violence. Um, now, I would be remiss here to not point out that while other suicide bombing campaigns that have included women have also included women giving statements about why they've agreed to be suicide bombers and, and have presented evidence of women consenting to their missions, um, within Boko Haram, I believe that there's evidence that a number of these women and girls have been sent out against their consent. That's not to say that all of Boko Haram's female suicide bombers have been unwilling. I certainly don't want to rob women of their agency in making this decision. But certainly with the use of underage bombers who cannot consent to missions, um, and from the evidence gathered by, um, there was just a report in the BBC, and Dion Cersei who uh, talked to girls who defected um, uh, from their suicide bombing missions, asked the security officials to take off their belt, it seems to me that a lot of girls are being sent out against their will. And so we get into this kind of issue, what do we call that? Because suicide implies a level of agency and consent and purpose. Um, and I, I quite like the term um, person-born IED uh, or PBID, um, and I'm, I'm hoping to see that term come more into use, particularly with regards to Boko Haram's female suicide bombers. Another layer of this puzzle is that while work done by Lindsay O'Rourke, Mia Bloom, um, and a number of other terrorism scholars have found that female suicide bombers are often more effective than their male counterparts, the research that we've done at the Combating Terrorism Center does not show that pattern holding. So Boko Haram's female suicide bombers are on average less lethal. Uh, they're more likely to detonate killing only themselves. Um, and while we haven't gathered information on this, I do think that they're certainly more likely to surrender to security officials um, because we've seen a number of women kind of running towards uh, or walking towards uh, security officials with their hands up saying, please get this off of me. Um, so whether that's the police, the military, or vigilantes, we're seeing high rates of defection that lead me to believe that a number of them are PBITs. And about how, how young are we talking about here? What's the youngest you've seen? Um, the youngest uh, suicide bomber in our records, and obviously it's difficult for the newspapers to report age, uh, I believe is estimated to be seven years old. Oh, Though I'm having trouble recalling now if it was a male or female bomber. Um, but child bombers have become a significant part of Boko Haram's repertoire of violence. And UNICEF, um, I believe a couple months ago, put out a report detailing their records of child bombings. And you, you talked about how the, the female suicide bombers are, are more likely to be targeting soft targets like markets, etc. 
in relation to the to the child bombers that they're using um uh in relation to the male bombers okay um children are often sent to soft targets as well uh, soft targets as well okay what measures have been taken by the Nigerian, the Cameroonian governments and others in looking at dissuading um, women from joining the group and in able to help draw them and the young, these younger people and anyone out of these, uh, these groups, this group? Oh, um, so I'm trying to think of how to phrase this politely. A lot of the DDR measures that I've heard about have seemed to me to be all sizzle and no steak. So there was sort of the the promise of Operation Safe Corridor uh, to promote defection from Boko Haram. There was supposed to be a de-radicalization program associated with that. Um, But news about that program has not been really forthcoming. Last I heard, there was maybe a pilot Um, And there's been a real lack of transparency about this. What happens when you read these reports about the Nigerian military rescuing 300 people, of which 200 were women, blah, blah, blah. What that story doesn't include is the fact that most of those people will go through quote-unquote screening, which is where they bring in members of the Civilian Joint Task Force, a local vigilante, And that person is entrusted with the authority to say, they joined willingly, they didn't. They joined willingly, they didn't. Uh, And all of that is typically happening in a military detention center. Um, And those who are believed to have been radicalized or those who are believed to have joined voluntarily are often kept in these military detention centers in deplorable conditions uh, for, you know, periods on end, uh, and periods really without a natural end. Um, Even if charges were to be brought against um, those who are suspected of of joining the insurgency voluntarily and uh, and assisting with um, kind of the the terrorist group's operations, the Nigerian court system is so overlogged that it would be this sort of indefinite detention. Um, And for those who are interested in hearing more about the the conditions under which people are, are being um, held Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch have both put out reports on Giwa Barracks in particular um, and the conditions there. Um, one of the reports is titled If You See It, You Will Cry. Um, and uh, it, it's truly uh, really horrifying what's been happening to these people. Um, so, in, in terms of policies to promote defection, I haven't really seen many. Um, and uh, the situation in Giwa is, is rather well known about the Northeast. Uh, and so if you're, you know, in the insurgency, that's not really providing you with a lot of incentive to leave. Um, so it's, it's sort of the risk of being captured and taken to that place versus the near certainty of being taken there. Um, so that's, it, it's been a real frustration amidst the advocacy community. Um, and the human rights community, uh, the conditions under which suspects have been So what do you think um, would be, uh, what do you think would be the appropriate and the more likely to be effective ways of uh, dissuading? Obviously, dealing with the human rights issues would would be number one. What else should be done, do you think? You know, the whole thing's going to require a community sensitization program, um, and it's going to require significant 
reconciliation effort. Um, because at, at present, when you speak to people in the Northeast about, like, would you live next to a member of Boko Haram? Would you X with a member of Boko Haram or a former member? Um, there's a real unwillingness um, to accept people back into the community. And that, to me, seems like the first step is addressing, cataloging and addressing the fears of the local communities in the Northeast so that they are ready to receive demobilized, repentant members of Boko Haram. You know, obviously, an insurgency like this doesn't rise up out of, you know, just the ether. There are structural inequalities um, and drivers of violent conflict in the Northeast um, that also need to be addressed if we're thinking about this long term. So in the short term, obviously, reforming the conditions under which suspects are held, addressing these human rights issues. But in the longer term, we have to recognize Boko Haram as part of a broader, longer term manifestation of, of the violent insurrections that have racked that region for uh, you know, years, for decades. Um, uh, Paul Lubeck, in particular, um, who I studied with when I was getting my MA at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, um, ha has done some really great work about how kind of like um, disaffected youth have mobilized into uh, kind of insurrections with a, a religious flavor. So you have my top scene, you have um, kind of a variety of groups that just didn't reach the locality of Boko Haram um, that, that have been characterizing the socio-political economy of the region for decades now. And what do you, um, how do you perceive the, the link between Boko Haram and ISIS now? And do you see this as a nominal connection or have you seen it manifest in any, in any significant way? So, for the reader's benefit, I will say that my position is not an uncontroversial one, mm -hmm. and that, obviously, my word cannot be the final one in this. Yeah. But I will say that I believe it is, at most, a nominal connection. Um, and I, I think that those who would tell you to be convinced by letters sent to and from people, um, in which one side is requesting money... Mm -hmm. um, uh, as, as evidence of a, of a profound and operational connection um, are, are being willfully deceptive. I'll also note that people should really take into account the implications uh, for uh, an ISIS connection in the international system. So right now, the United States uh, is operating under an outdated authorization of the use of military force, AUMF. Um, me and my policy friends joke that it's big enough to drive a tank through, and boy, have we ever. So if Boko Haram were found to be affiliated with ISIS, um, operations against them would be justified under the AUMF because ISIS is under the AUMF, an affiliate of al-Shabaab, which is covered by the AUMF. So I do think that there's a lot of sort of political wishful thinking in some circles in Washington, um, and they've funded research to draw out that connection to justify a particular political stance um, and, and to lobby for activities that they would like to see. So while I am open to seeing more decisive evidence of an operational connection between the two, I would 
advise people to be very skeptical uh, of those, particularly those who are receiving funding from kind of shadier, less well-established uh, think tanks and lobbying, out uh, lobbying outfits to, to really take those associations with a heaping tablespoon of salt. Um, what do you see as the, the future trajectory for this group now? Um, over the, over the next few years, do you see them changing significantly? Do you see it going on the same course, or what do you, what do you see? Yeah, I, I've said this before, um, and I, I stand by it. The one thing that you can kind of know for sure will come from Boko Haram is relentless innovation. The group has moved between urban guerrilla tactics to attempting to be a territory-based caliphate, um, back to urban guerrilla tactics. I mean, it's... It is a flexible insurgency, and so I would anticipate that it will likely persist in some form or another for a number of years. Um, you know, it's a it's a low cost insurgency um, operating in terrain that makes it difficult for the, the government to crack down. It, I mean, I, I anticipate that they'll be around for years to come. Best case scenario, in my view, is that it becomes kind of a, a Joseph Coney type situation where it's a persistent insurgency that kind of dwindles and fizzles on its own. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the government's activities in the course of fighting Boko Haram have actually given legitimacy to Boko Haram's rhetorical claims made particularly in the initial years of its formation um, about the government's persecution of Muslims uh, and about the unjust nature of the government. Um, so the more that the government cracks down indiscriminately, uh, I believe the more kind of legitimacy Boko Haram will have, uh, and the easier it will be for them to recruit willingly. So with Boko Haram being one of the most active terrorist groups in the world, but also one of the most under-researched terrorist groups in the world, what do you think our academic listeners, if they wanted to focus on, on this group, what do you think are the core topics or core questions that they should be dealing with? Oh, man, I would love to have someone take an eye to their logistics. Because um, I've heard some really fascinating stories about how they use women um, to access marketplaces um, and their relationships with various trading groups in the region um, and about what attitudes traders have um, towards the group. Um, I would really love to see that um, uh, in, in particular because there has been this uh, famine-like conditions and, and shortly, uh, certainly a, a food crisis in the region. There's been an economic downturn. I, I have to wonder to what extent smuggling groups uh, and, and then different markets recognize when there's a member of Boko Haram in their midst and are willing to sell to them anyway. Um, I'd also look at the government's profiteering off of this. Uh, you know, the the rampant corruption in the humanitarian sector, um, as well as the rumors that um, in the initial counterinsurgency effort you would have Nigerian soldiers moonlighting as Boko Haram or selling military equipment, um, which right now are, are rumors that I put stock in because I trust the people that I've heard them from, um, but that could certainly use a more systemic, um, systematic approach. Um, what else? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think those are, are two really kind of fruitful avenues. I mean, you know, as I just said before, Boko Haram will 
undoubtedly adapt to meet however the Nigerian government uh, approaches it next. So keeping an eye on the, the shifting of tactics would also be, I think, a, a really kind of fruitful research endeavor. And for someone who's done extensive field work um, with, uh, within Nigeria and looking at this topic specifically, any advice on, uh, on doing field work out there? Uh, pack Cipro. Um, I think that's a, that's kind of the universal uh, field work advice. Um, you know, I've I've advised this to a number of students um, here at Yale um, who have considered doing field work in Nigeria or, or field work more generally um, in conflict zones or around armed groups. Um, and and my advice is to really build up your network slowly um, and advance into potentially more higher risk areas only once you know that your network is solid and you really have a good understanding of the terrain. So I didn't go to Maiduguri until I believe my third or fourth trip to Nigeria. Um, and I had already been to Yola and Adamawa and established connections there and, and used local networks to assure me about what areas of Maiduguri would and would not be safe. Um, so that's, not to fear monger, you know, I, I don't think my degree is, um, you know, suicide mission for a Western researcher. Uh, in fact, with the humanitarian aid presence right now, it's, it's easier now to do work there than when I, I started. Um, the hotels have gotten much nicer uh, after their influx of, of aid revenue. <laughs> um, but really build up a local network. This is not something that you can manage just through your kind of Western connections or, or foreign connections. Um, but yeah. Perfect. Well, Hilary, thank you so much for that. That's, it's been a really eye-opening conversation and uh, continue on the great research and best of luck with the PhD now that you've started it as well. It's, uh, it's ex an exciting time and I'm sure, I'm sure we'll be, uh, all our listeners will be eagerly uh, waiting to see what what you publish next on this uh on this really as i said an under-researched topic um i'd like to uh thank both uh Torella Ike and, and Simeon Logan for doing research for this episode as always be sure to follow us on twitter at t-e-r-c-u-e-l and tweet at us with the hashtag talking terror and uh be sure to listen to our back episodes our 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 usual episodes, as well as these special episodes as well. Uh, we're going to have a few more specials coming up in the, in the next few weeks, so be sure to, to check your feed for that over the next while. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>